you like conversation on a variety of topics? Feel like no one wants to talk about the things that interest you? Tired of only hearing the same political, sports, or catastrophe talk? Yeah, we feel that way too. Join two high-functioning geeks as they discuss just about anything under the sun. We can't tell you what we'll be talking about each week because we don't know where our brains will take us. It will be an interesting conversation, though, so hang on and join us. Here comes the Relentless Geekery. There we go. That should give us some good space and contrast. Look how cool we are. Yeah, I'm avoiding TIE Fighters. (laughs) <laughs> it is Star Wars month. I hadn't thought of embracing that theme. I'm sorry about that. I yeah. thought of the cold. It, yeah. was, it was cold enough here. I, our house is well insulated and warm and so forth. And yet last night I got cold. And so I went and got like another comforter and threw it on top of us. And we've been sleeping with a comforter and a bedspread on us. because So it's kind of like a weighted blanket. It really is. It like swaddles you and <laughs> makes you sleep, I guess, because we had switched to just anyway it was it's very weird the i'm usually pretty temperature self-regulating i'm hardly like skinky cold-blooded or anything like that and yet waking up when everything is usually nice and like cuddly warm and it's not it's like i must correct this and so i'm <laughs> I around in the dark <laughs> i think it really does feel more cold when it's damp and it's been raining for days off and on it may have you know it's funny it has been the overcast, I talk about this, I'm sure, every year. I have a touch of SAD, a seasonal affective disorder, where every morning when it, when you wake up and it's not sun, but it's just that kind of overcast gloom and stuff like that, I really, I used to spring out of bed. And nowadays, <laughs> it's just so tempting to be like, you could just kind of roll over, fluff the pillow and go back down. The, oh, and I'm, I'm heading out at the end of the week for my next California trip. And I, usually that's a tonic because, hey, California... But as you probably know, they've been having torrential rainfall, atmospheric rivers, as they call them, parking on top of the state. And they really haven't reached down to San Diego as much as Sacramento and more like center and upwards. And yet I'm scheduled to have four days of rain when I get there, like Saturday through Monday or something like that. I Whatever I was expecting to go walk on the beach. No, the pier is closed because the surf is so high. (laughs) Just just let us know if it feels any different to roll over and go back to sleep in California as opposed to Ohio. (laughs) That's true. There's got to be some kind of magnetic thing. Anyway, okay. So one of the things that we both do that kind of helps sometimes is getting together with people and playing games. Both those things are pretty much known mood lifters during the winter. The last couple of years, I've been getting together with my cousin and some friends and playing games. And we've never really done that before. I never thought of my cousin as a big game player. We used to play Rummy with my grandparents. We kind of got into this, hey, you got lots of games, bring some over and teach them to us. Okay, we'll see how it goes. And they've been loving it. We had a great time the other day with some new games. One of the games in Flux, uh, I'm sure you've played Flux before. There's about 300 variations and themed Flux versions. But for people that don't know, Flux is exactly what it sounds like. It's a game where the rules and the goal of the game are in a constant state of Flux because of game. They change every round, if not every card. You know what I mean? If you're a planner, it's really frustrating be like, oh, I had three quarters of what I needed for victory. And now that just is trash to the side of the road. Absolutely. I've got one friend that refuses to play that game. 
because what's it matter? I might as well just throw cards down randomly. And it's like, okay, yeah, right. not your type Colleen of game. thinks that way. He's not a big fan. Yeah. And what's what? like it because it's so different than every other game. It's yes, the absolutely. that they did to come up with all the ways in which they can play with those expectations of what a game is. I find that intriguing. So, yes. Okay. So we were playing the Marvel version of Flux. I figured okay. they had played Flux before, but I figured playing a nice theme that they know you feel more comfortable with. And sure. so I laid down a keeper that was Groot. Groot says that you it's a good one to have because there's several goals that use Groot. Keepers are always good and whatever. Well, you got Groot, branches, haha, that's Groot. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Well, Groot says that you, as long as you have Groot down on the table, you are not allowed to say anything except I am Groot. If you say <laughs> anything Groot. else, exactly. <laughs> you, can, you have to give the card to someone else and then they have to do that until they miss it. So, of course... They're okay. all sitting there and they start going, we don't understand this card. What's it mean? And wait, how do I play this? And what do we do next? And I'm going, I am trying to lure you. Exactly. Yes. So I'm explaining <laughs> it as if I was really explaining. I picked up the card. And I'm like, I am Groot. I am Groot. I am Groot. I am Groot. And then just laughing, <laughs> tears are rolling because we're in that goofy mood. And I just kept doing it. And then yeah. some other friends came to the door and I opened the door and I said, I am Groot. And they look at me and they walk in. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, okay. yeah. What's going on here? Must be yeah. game night or something, right? But then my That's sister. Hilarious. That's then my sister called because she had a question, and the phone rings, and I went, "I am Groot," and they're all laughing. So I pick it up and I go, "I am Groot," and my sister goes, "Hi," and then she goes, "I've got a question. Uh, do you have a moment?" I said, "I am Groot." She's going to know what you're doing. What, and my cousin is right. just laughing. So I hold the phone out to him and he's like, I don't want to talk to her. And I'm like, and He's not going to explain. They're going to leave you hanging. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I went through the whole conversation. My sister kept asking me questions and I'm just going, I am Groot. I am Groot. I am Groot. I am Groot. And she's like, Okay. Whatever you're doing, call me back later. And I'm like, It cracked us up because it didn't even phase her. It's okay. I don't know what my brother's doing now, but. I'll talk to him when he's back. Right. It's not like he's mind. captive with a gun to his head. This is just something that he does. Exactly. Okay, that's very funny. And then the interesting <laughs> thing was I pulled out another game called Zombies with three exclamation marks. I don't know if you've ever played it. It's a tile. So. It's a map building game. Every turn you lay down a map piece and each map could have zombies on it and health and bullets. And it's an action movie. The idea is to survive so you can get to the helicopter and escape. And right. you get to move the zombies every turn. So you've got hordes of zombies moving around the city as you're trying to get through and get health and stay alive and all that. And I've played it before. Trying to avoid yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's a cute little game. It's one of those games that if you play a lot of games that you're like, eh, it kind of loses steam after a little while. There's not enough to it. Avoid the zombies, kill the zombies, send the zombies towards your co-players, et cetera, et cetera. So I played it with them. I thought, let's give it a try. I haven't played it for a while. I spent money on this stupid thing. They loved yeah. it. They thought it was great. And that's the thing. Different people like different types of games. And they thought that one was a load of fun. So I'm like, all right, we'll that's do it again. Cool. Bring over a bunch of games and you get to see. Like I, I have said this many times. I think you can learn so much about a person in an hour of game playing, more than an hour of talking with them a lot yeah. of times. You know what I mean? They just, who they are, what matters to them what they find funny, what they find interesting. It all comes out. Like it, we have our monthly game thing with a couple of Colleen's family. 
And, and there's preferences amongst them. We play a lot of cards because the family grew up playing cards, much like mine did. But we right. also, they're really good at finding the $10 little card game that is, you're going to try to match another person in, in an odd characteristic exactly. So if you say flightless bird, and I say this in case Maureen and Aaron ever listened to this, I, I said ostrich and she said penguin. And she was certain that the only good answer was penguin. How could I not match her on penguin? And so that has lived on beyond the game that whenever there's some weird little, not even rule anomaly, just something, <laughs> penguin, <laughs> could be ostrich, could be ostrich. So it, it, we have tried various different games and some of them stick and others are like, I don't know, it isn't so much often that everybody loves it. Sometimes people really, they have such bad luck in a game sometimes that even if the game is good, they just don't want to play it because they're always in fourth place. And after yeah. all, you get tired of, I don't know what it is about this game, but my luck is bad. Your play is good, whatever it might be. So please, let's not play this right. any more than we have to. Once a night at most. Whereas yep. Pinochle, you can all play because there's a good luck skill balance. <laughs> the, the one thing about zombies that I thought of after playing it again, because it's really been years since I even touched that game. It's just cute with all the zombies on there. The rules are fairly easy. It's straightforward. But they, they, after you reach a point where certain things are like, oh, really? That's not, it's making the game less fun. So we said, why don't right, we? It could be better. Yeah, exactly. So it's a definite game yeah. that lends itself to a few house rules to make it more fun and balanced for your play group. It's a good game for that. A lot of games, you don't mess with the rules too much because it really changes the game and changes the gameplay. We've talked about this in Mind Games. Mets has an event every year called Mind Games where hundreds of us, like 340, I think right. was the last count, get together to play test 60, 70, 80 new games. That are, we do it in April, so it's going to be coming out for the next holiday season and so forth. There's often, part of what you're supposed to do is not just play test it, do you like it or not? You give pretty specific feedback about how original was it? How good is it in replayability? Are there any suggestions you would make as to the quality of gameplay? And Mensons are really good at compare and contrast between other games they've played and what might make this game better. And I know that we must have seen over the course of, I think it's 30 years running now, any number of requested changes that were incorporated into the final version because the game manufacturers, the what you call them, the authors really said, yeah, that it's a better game. It's a balanced game. It's right. a, that we would be a card that does that because we don't have it currently. And I love that event because it really is that incredible immersion. It's a sleepless weekend. You've got like 48 to 72 hours to play a ton of games. And sometimes it's with your clutch of people that you enjoy playing games with. Oftentimes it's just someone says, hey, I got to play Zombies on the Run. And then six people go over there, however many the number of players is. And you really get to know people like I was saying. And I must admit, some people, well, I can't wait to play with this guy again. He was game. He was funny. It was like, and there's some people that are just such rules Nazis, slow, so pedantic about various different things. It's like, I, I could do without not joining in right. a lot with certain people. <laughs> and <laughs> so, it's, I love that you say that because I had two instances recently. The elf card game, which I may have mentioned before, I've been working on for a couple years. Yeah. And I took it to the RG in December down in Cincinnati. And I thought it was like, this is the pretty good, maybe a few tweaks here and there. And it played well. And then over the break, I had sent it to someone else down in Cincinnati and their family played it. I didn't tell them any rules, tell me the cards. I just sent it to them with the rules. And then I played it here okay. again with my cousin and them when, and they hadn't played it for a while. 
And even after all that, I'm like, oh, this doesn't play well. This doesn't play well. This it could be changed. But then the friends down in Cincinnati, they said, oh, got on a Zoom call with me and said, here, we did this. And they had a sheet they had made up and they made some different cards. And they said, here's what we were doing for this. And I'm like, those are great. Those are amazing. And it was just, sometimes you get too close to something. Yeah. Yeah. And times you're like into the mechanics of it and you might right. not be able to take that step and see it with fresh eyes. Yeah, Very much. Yeah. I think this last round of beta testing really enhanced the game a lot. Now I've got probably a couple hours of work ahead of me of altering some things, but it really great. Exactly. Yeah. And that was interesting. But then I got another friend group that I play a lot of different games with totally different mm-hmm. style of play. There's some games I wouldn't even bother playing with them and they wouldn't like, but We've joked about this in the past that they like to alter the rules to house rules. So every single game becomes a build up your force and overwhelm everybody. And whoever can do that quickest wins. They love those resource management games. Yeah. 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 But I even do that with things like flux. They would hate flux. They would change the rules to like, here's the goal. That's the only goal for the game. And they changed Catan and I played it and I was kind of like, what's the point of this game to build up faster? Okay, but you got rid of all the other rules for reasons we want to build up. Yeah, it's a cooperative game, so we help each other build up. And they weren't trading cards. They were just giving each other the resource cards they wanted so they could build up. And they created gold so that you could, no robbers. If you got a robber card, you just took that from the bank. And they created gold, which let you choose any resource you wanted. Wow. Now, now, if you're the group that wants to, I like cooperative games when it's such a change from everything usually being competitive that it's cool. It's very interesting to take a thing that is very much in the heart of it about competition and small advantages and withholding information and et cetera, et cetera, that to change that into a cooperative game and just like throwing out, nope, no crime. How interesting. Yeah. Uh, it, wow. I haven't. Maybe way back in Champaign-Urbana, when I was in school at University of Illinois, they had a couple good gaming groups. And and that's back when I was still playing D and stuff like that. And so sometimes there were groups that was like, we, as a group, you're new. We really don't like to have it that we have to worry about internal dissension. Steve is not going to be thieving from other players, backstabbing, et cetera, et cetera. And I was okay with that. I'm not here to unmake friends. Boy, there's some games as you like diplomacy or something like that, where it's all about making alliances and breaking alliances and you can really have like friendships break up over you really betrayed me you really set me up you looked me in the eye and lied to me and now i'm not sure that i can trust you in real life you know what i mean it's like oh i've there's a couple things that and maybe just there are certain people that for certain games they're hyper competitive or they're rules nazis or whatever else it might be i i know that when i've been to mind games i really am one of another thing that i really like about mind games is there's a continual suggestion by people who specialize if you will that is there any way that i could just play strategy games or word games or trivia games because that's what i really like and i think it's an important thing to take yourself out of your comfort zone and there's not it's not like reading a dictionary there's maybe what two four eight pages of rules you should be able to internalize that what's the end condition what's the winning condition what do i have to worry about in terms of resource management or whatever else it might be how do you do the pieces move and that's just part of keeping your brain nimble is 
you just played a game over here. This is different in all different kinds of ways, but put that new set of rules in and play this game instead. And when you do that 60 times, it might be a, an exhausting thing, but it's an exhilarating thing to say, what is it? Resilience is often talked about as one of those things that's going to keep you alive longer, no mental deterioration, get through trauma more. And mind games is very much about that, that it's all about resilience, not hyper-specializing being like, I don't know, I'm a big trivia guy. All those thoughts stay in my head for whatever reason, all those little factoids. But that's not the only kind of thing I like doing. And in fact, I like being forced to be, I'm not usually good about abstract strategy. And honestly, I am at that too. I'm, this is once in a while we have to get on our little, whatever, a brain unhumbleness. <laughs> I really like all different kinds of games and uh, I often catch on quick and can get ahead of other people that are still learning and figuring out. And far from the best, Steve Yates is great, or El Maxime. I've met some players that really are like, they're the guys that explain games to other people instead of reading the rules because they really get the essences of games so well. But having said that, if there's ever like a game decathlon, I got a pretty good shot because I right. really am good at Scrabble, good at Monopoly, and good at Acquire, and good at Catan, formerly Settlers of Catan. So that'll be a trivia contest one day. What, is, what was Catan called before? What, you know what two I mean? A's, right? I think the original right, German had two, two A's. A's. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, and and, they, go ahead. I'm sorry. I think that I'm not the only guy that's like that gal too, that there's all kinds of people that like all those different kinds of things because they really do activate different parts of your brain. And I talked about this a little bit too. If you play a role-playing game, it's really cool once in a while to say, I often play the tank because I'm big physically and I'm used <laughs> to what the advantages are of being like that. How about if I play the nimble ninja that I'm about quickness to the attack and things like that. And it just, it's cool to put yourself into a different mind frame. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's healthy. Yeah. And one of the interesting things for me, it's really been a lesson in gaming to create something and try and make it balanced and write the rules and come up with the rules because that elf game, it's a simple little card game designed for kids, but it took so long to come up with the right combination of playing cards to make it fun and enjoyable for people. And, and then having other people play it and give feedback and what their minds are thinking and saying, oh, you, you got to really evaluate it. Oh, that was a good idea. That was a good rule change. That was a good whatever. And the really interesting yeah. thing was my friends who like the games that altered Catan, they love that version of it. But I was like, oh my God, how much longer is this game going to go? And what really cracked me yeah. up is one of those friends who loves everything we ever play. It's always build your power and attack and win. He loves Axis and Allies and was at a gaming store and a group was playing Axis and Allies. And he asked if he could sit in on it because you don't see a lot of people okay. playing that game. So he's, oh man, somebody played Not anymore. Yeah. He said he had to leave and quit because they altered the rules and he didn't enjoy it because it, he said it wasn't balanced and it changed how he played the game and stuff. And I'm looking at him blinking. I'm like thinking, dude, that's what you always want to do to every game. <laughs> exactly. And, man, I have so many good mind games memories. We've been, wasn't it on the first probably eight, 10 years when it was only in New York City? But as soon as it started traveling around the country, I was one of the guys, if it's within reasonable distance, I'll go. And then reasonable turned to eight hour drive. Sure, I'll go. I've driven to St. Louis and stuff like that. I haven't flown. I don't think I've ever flown because that just seems to be. I don't know, I'm willing to spend 300 for a hotel on it and maybe 500 because of the fee, but I'm not willing to spend 1000 on it. That is from your seven, really your seven limit. It's, it's, there's <laughs> something about I, I have a reasonableness test. Having said that, I've had so many good times 
for instance, off, almost always, every single year, there's one game that you can tell when it's being played because there's such laughter at that table. You know what I mean? There's all the social games. And one year it was Curses. I think this was up in Albany, if I remember right. And it's why oh, I can't wait to play that. Curses are one of those things a little bit going back to your first story of what you have to say, I am Groot only. You get cursed with various different things. Hey, you can only play with your left hand or you have to. And if you don't obey, then you lose resources or whatever else it might be. And if I remember right, the curses were additive. And so you'd have people getting really contorted into the kinds of things that they continually had to do. I once had, I was cursed. I had to speak like Elmer Fudd. And so everything was, oh, you rascal, you have it, that kind of thing. And then I had a card where I had to sing a Bruce Springsteen song. And I was like, the highway's jabbed with broken pillows on a West Jets Island wife. And I, honestly, I did it pretty well again now. Everybody at the table fell out of their chairs because it wasn't like you steal yourself and do it. You just go in. And some yeah. people are with mimics. They're unembarrassable. It, we had so much fun. And in fact, the people that were like, I'm not going to do that. It's come on, man. Right. You couldn't be in a safer, more accepting, more goofy place than right here, right now. Right. Your little store, whatever the card is telling you, just try it. Yeah. You know, you step outside yourself for a moment. Yeah. We, but, I, I, anyway. <laughs> but Maxis and Allies, buddy, he would hate that game. He would refuse to play that game. He Social, interactive, fun games right. like that, he doesn't like. And we played Dominion. And he said, yeah, that's okay. I don't mind that. He, I like the deck builder aspect and stuff. Then we did a different layout that had a witch with curses. So suddenly he's getting these okay. curses, which are negative points. And add, he's like, okay, if you ever play with curse, with witches again, I refuse to play. And he won't play legendary if we're getting weaknesses or DC deck builder with weaknesses. It is just, no, that's no fun. I'm not playing that because it has to be building up to this huge thing and anything taking away from my powerful army, I, I don't want to deal with and play with. And I'm like, but that's what makes the deck builder so much fun because you can't just have one strategy and play every time. You have to change as you see what else is being developed by other players, by the yeah. game itself. Exactly. Colleen and I have actually talked about this. Maybe we have. There's a streak in America that when we started to play a lot of Texas Hold'em and started to actually televise that, there's a certain kind of person that they don't play poker the wise way, where every single hand is a new occurrence. You always judge pot odds as to what, you know, the quality of your hand and what you're seeing, however others are betting and what's in the pot. And you bet by the odds. And it's kind of funny because I had said that's one of the things we should talk about today is risk management. And other people, all they're about is getting to that point of I'm all in. They want the big drama. They want that. I, I'm going to just make it all in one swell foop. Instead of, no, I made a hundred different small decisions that led me to have an overall advantage, and now I'm the winner. They really want it to be a lightning strike or something like right. that. And I'm not sure what that is in people's psychology. They like the home run that wins instead of a series of singles that got two runs and that kind right. of thing. So it's cool for the drama and stuff like that. But the difficulty is when you start, people have, they start doing that in real life where that's not the right strategy at all. You know what I mean? So it can't be that you always want to just say, I'm going to play until I get to my um, all in point. You have to like raise a kid so that they have 18 years worth of instruction, not I did the best I could by five and now they're on their own. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know what I mean? It, right. it's, I have to, maybe we'll talk about that further when you see evidences of that. But like very much when you hear about how things develop, like always getting to a championship, 
always getting to, there's bracketology that says the way you get to a winner is by having a series of small winners to get to a large one. And oftentimes it's, how does the decathlon work? It's, you get points for various different events based on their difficulty and comparisons to others and stuff. And so it really is an accretion of points. Instead of being in the final event, you're going to declare the winner. It's more, they really killed such an advantage that the final event is like, it's already decided unless this guy falls down during the marathon and can't continue or something like that, right. whatever it is, 10K, I think instead of a marathon. But yes, that's, I, maybe because I am an accretor. Why is my book collection so cool? Not because I want to buy the one book that is the rule them all and in the darkness bind them. It's because I like having series of things. I like having a lot of different things because you get a variety of heroes, a variety of possibilities to add to your collection. I, that's, I have that maybe preset in my mind as well, that I've always been a series guy instead of a single thing. I don't want the one best diamond. I like having a whole bunch of pretties, that kind of thing. And and what's funny, you mentioned that in conjunction with games, the risk-taking, the choice and decision-making, because you can play games and think differently than you would normally. And and sometimes that can affect how you look at a real situation. Investing is an interesting one. I know you do a lot of because people, oh my gosh, it's dropping, sell everything in panic mode. And because they feel like it's a risk for them and they get panicky, but in a game, in that same type of situation, they may ride it out. They may test it because the stakes aren't real. I, I think being able to use that skill in real life is beneficial, but I think a lot of people miss that. I think, honestly, I wish I saw more of that, that what some people talk about. I learned this from a game. There actually, there's all kinds of good studies now and books written about it and so forth that gamifying things yeah. is a great way to get people to, to make a better life. How do you finally lose weight? Not by saying, I'm going to eat healthy and exercise more, but it's more like, like hey, I get a point every day if I eat my uh, my more fiber. And then those, those points lead me to, oh, I get a reward. And all those little things that can make it that it's kind of like a dungeon crawl where you, what do you do? You explore, you find various different magic items that make you mightier. So they say, wow, if I can see that I'm getting bigger, better, faster, stronger, it not only is better in and of itself, it enables me to be better for everything I'm going to encounter in the future. And that's straight out of gaming, that my stats have gone up, my my weapons and armor are better, that kind of thing. So I hats off to the people that are really working on that, especially if they're doing it not as an adult, where you might be a little bit set in your ways, but for kids where they're teaching them, here's a great way to learn how to like have good study habits. You know what I mean? It's straight out of like the old gold star on the refrigerator theory, if you will. It's okay to have positive reinforcement and incremental reinforcement and stuff like that. And then you also get a chance to talk about addiction, that if they start to be, can't not be thinking about what should I be doing now in order to gain more points instead of, you could just relax and go for a walk. You can play too. You can play (laughs) just to play. This is, I'll, I usually don't get vulgar on this, I swear, but I just, this cracked me up. They had a little, a whole list of memes from parents. They have various different sites that people can do the art link letter thing, thing the kids say. And the parents said, part of being a parent is learning that a kid will really break into tears if they weren't the first person to fart in the new year. (laughs) You know what I mean? That they're like, that was going to be my moment. I was going to, and then someone else beat them to it. And like I said, it's so vulgar, but it really is that thing in kids that some kids will Make a big thing out of who gets the back seat, the correct part of the back seat. Yeah. And others are like, oh, anything's how does that how does that show up in your life? You know what I mean? And, and there's memes that say, Hey, 
don't settle, always go for the best. And there's others that say, pick your battles. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's got to be somewhere in between, especially when you have really wise people that said exactly opposite things. <laughs> now what right. do you do? And it's oh. funny you mentioned, because I know, you know I've been working for this company for 11 years now, and we do a lot of okay. human resources and talent management with companies and stuff like that. And the gamification of work has grown in that decade. We we do surveys about it, whereas 10 years ago, it really wasn't even heard of. And they're like, even in Amazon Warehouse, oh, I picked this many items. Oh, well, my items weighed more and I got these, those types of things for the employees. And then yeah. you get an extra break. You get they, they do that type of stuff. And the funny thing is that doesn't really affect me and work so much for me that giving me these points to lose weight, eat better. Oh, I forgot to do that for the last three weeks, but I've lost five pounds and I've been eating my oatmeal. I still do it for my personal goals. My personal, I, I guess I set the goals myself to win, but being open to everyone else tracking me and following, I, I could care less or uh, celebrating when I win. Lots of times I'll hit some goal of mine and I move on. It doesn't really, I don't want all that attention just for this type thing. Yeah, yeah. On a kind of a connected theme, uh, we Colleen and I love watching the Olympics. I've been watching, I've been watching for all of my life, probably since if I don't remember from 60, I remember from 64 when I was five years old. One of the things that you'll hear about is there are some people that are really great trainers and they know exactly what they want to be doing. And the way that they become mighty is by being like a perfect machine at the thing that they're setting out to do. There's other people that are saying, you know, I find that when I blank myself, I go Zen mode. Like skier Bodie Miller was all about this. Everybody's saying, you're representing the United States. You know, what do you think you're going to do? It's going to go out there and ski like I always do. I do it for the joy of it. And sometimes nature and I have this beautiful dance that we do together and it's wonderful and sometimes not. And I've heard musicians say that. I've heard various other people say that you have to take yourself out of what you're doing. You have to do the mindless aspect of it instead of the really mindful, concentrated thing. But then beauty can still occur because you've so internalized what it is to do that activity that you just let your body do it, let your muscle memory right. do it and stuff like that. So again, multiple ways to pursue that. It's I have noticed that sometimes when I have given a talk, I really don't remember all of what I said. <laughs> I was so perfectly in the moment that I was like, I was riffing while I'm doing it. I'm kind of like the guy, the observer over my shoulder that's saying, hey, that was a good one. I'll have my own self-conversation. And it doesn't right. ever sound like I'm insane. It doesn't sound like I got voices running around in my head. But I can tell that, wow, I'm in a place of such capacity that I really can have like multiple threads going and I get to choose, pluck which one is going to come out this time, but it doesn't have to be a certain one. I never memorize. I never just recite. And so it's cool to be, wow, everything came together for that one. I got a lot of people nodding and good laughter and I got through all my material and all that kind of stuff. And yet, can I count on that the next time? No, it's kind of like I maybe I was... I had exactly the right breakfast that day. The light in the room was just right. You, I always go talk about this flow, lets you know how you can summon that kind of thing, you know, how to avoid interruptions, how to get yourself into that mind where you really are hyper productive and hyper in the moment. And so I try to do that. And in fact, those times when I've seen myself not be as verbally, I have been able to then think back 
wow, there was something that was jarringly wrong. Well, I had to troubleshoot because the connections, and you had that, you were, my cable's not right. I, this cable always works. What the hell's going on here? The guarantees that they made me that I'm just going to hook in HDMI to their monitor, and then it doesn't. It's now I got to go into deep technical troubleshooting mode, and that's not necessarily talking mode at all. You know what I mean? So I can I could tell how I was taken out of my game, if you will. It's, right. it's important to be self-understanding enough to go, and Robert Fripp, my hero from King Crimson, he's had many times talked about when he performs, like the music moves through him, it comes through him, and he often has talked after the shows, and at one point, someone from the audience yells out, we don't really want to hear talking, pick up your guitar and play some more. And he was like, that moment has passed. That's not what I can do now. This is what I can offer you. And how interesting to have him been aware for a long time that you really have to be in the right frame of mind to create miracles. Yeah. And then when it's not, if you try, you'll just look terrible. You'll stumble. You'll frustrate yourself with, oh, this is usually so easy and it's just not common. I know <laughs> so, that. And yeah, the, yeah. the risk reward thing, we, doing talks, there are so many people that would refuse to do a talk. When really what risk is that you flub up, you move on. No one's taking a knife to your chest or anything if you mess up. But with that, mm -hmm. with the writing, the books, whatever endeavors I've done, I've learned for me that if I ask somebody, so what'd you think of the talk? I, I stop asking that. I'm like, what could be better? Or what didn't you like? That's more what, because for me, it, when I have someone that says, oh, I liked your talk. That was good and great. It's cool. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. But I didn't get anything out of you telling me that. It doesn't make me like, oh, pumped up. But like when you mm -hmm. listen, you're like, well, this part here, or this could have been better. Or somebody like Maggie and them that just played my game, they said, oh, we loved it. But here's what we did different. Here's the rules we changed. Here's the cards. Let's talk about. Kind of yeah. Exactly. And that, I got done with that conversation. And I was much more jazzed and happy and felt, all right, they, they played it and got so into it that they discovered problems and holes and how can I improve it? To me, that is the reward more so than just having a room full of people go, oh, that was so good. Music yeah, playing is different though. Amazing. I definitely okay. can feel the flow. And when I played with people on stage, if the audience wasn't getting into it, you could tell. And it's, I do want right. to see. And it does affect, it makes you more leaden. It's like, where am I, not, where am I connecting here? What's going on? Exactly. Right. exactly. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever had a talk where People weren't enjoying it. I've been very lucky to do it mostly in front of, it's a self-selecting audience. People already like the top. If they don't know me, right. they might like the topic and stuff. But and but I'll tell you, one of the reasons I'm a pretty funny guy, but one of the reasons that I haven't ever gone to try stand-up comedy, not once, not gone to an open mic or anything, is because I really have this vision of people just sitting there with their arms crossed going, make me laugh. And wow, I don't, I want collegiality. I want my friends. I want that joyous like we're ready to do this instead of it being a competition thing and stand-up comics maybe have that many talk about that that they have a chip on their shoulder they want to they want to slay they want to kill the audience they're going to be the one that everybody in the room has to pay attention to or that it was a, an escape for them when they were young and they were shy and bullied and stuff like that they found they could avert violent by being the guy that could get the group to crack up and I haven't had many of those experiences. I'm funny just all the time and off the cuff, but never have I had to do it where now I've got to, got to, I have to make gotta work at laugh. it. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's it. People talk about that all the time. When, what's the difference between work and play? It's when you have to. It's like <laughs> I have had the joy of having a job that I've always enjoyed doing instead of just 
I can't say always, most of the time, have it's not been a slog. It's been, I get to solve problems today. I get to create order out of chaos today. I get to learn new things today. I get to create something beautiful and powerful. And it's not just going in and struggling through it. You know what I mean? Most of the time it's been like that. Right. So so that reminds me of a good story. When I was playing with Mm -hmm. my friends in the rock band and we started touring around a little bit, not much, a little, we got a gig over at a frat party for Carnegie Mellon University. Now we were young, like 19, maybe 20. And we're like, Whoa, we're going to play at a frat party for a university. They paid us. And this is cool. We were so jazzed. The whole trip and experience was really a buddy comedy movie, a buddy trip, road trip comedy. It was just one problem and error after another over and over for the whole trip. But when we got there, and this is that flow, that feedback and stuff when you're playing, we got there and the frat party, first of all, was a dry frat party. There is no alcohol, which I'm not condoning alcohol, but it's very difficult to mix rock and roll party with out having alcohol it just they go together most of the time yeah Yeah. Uh, and so we were like okay we're good with that it's not like we haven't played in front of dry audiences before but they all did what you said they sat in chairs like this the whole time Uh, no Mm -hmm. singing along no clapping no swaying just everybody sitting there like this like they're evaluating the music and afterwards it's that's all they did and we're like I was like it was an engineering frat instead of I, a <laughs> maybe but I think what okay. capped the whole thing the whole end of the evening we were covering a stairway to heaven zeppelin and who doesn't know stairway to heaven so playing stairway to heaven and just going along and our guitarist just playing and our lead guy who I could tell you more stories about but I won't diss him in this conversation he's up there singing and he stops and pauses and we keep playing he looks he goes guys stop I forgot the lyrics and our guitar player just looks at him and he's strumming and he just holds up on the neck of his car, his middle finger. And we kept right on playing. So the rest of Stairway <laughs> to Heaven was an instrumental. Was an instrumental. <laughs> yeah. So very quickly after that, we shut down, packed up and left. That's funny. It was Man. not funny at the time. <laughs> I, I, Of course, it, time and distance. It was yeah. humor out of tread. <laughs> exactly that. But just think of that. You're like 19 like they are. You right. know what I mean? You're really doing something that they're going to college and they're getting their degree, but you're doing something that they can't or right. they might dream of, but are not pursuing it. What an interesting situation. What yeah. an interesting contrast. Interesting. Okay. Was, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to switch shift gears a little bit. Talking about music, which we've been talking a whole lot about. You know, Sunday when I was with my cousin playing games, I was telling them about the revelation you gave me on prog rock being classical based and rock and roll being music based. And they had no idea what prog rock was. They didn't know what I meant by blues based versus classical. So I was trying to teach them and pulled up Spotify and was playing songs. They're like, yeah, good example. Yeah. And they just didn't grasp the concept. And it got to the point where it was like, okay, it's just another one of Steve's crazy things. So I stopped. But, but they mentioned, so I pulled up closer to the edge by yes. And I said, okay, now listen to this. And they said, oh, yes, we saw yes, we liked them. And Pam goes, actually, I remember the concert. We were there and they started to play a song and we went, oh, we know this one. And it's like, no, we don't know this one. They said, all their stuff sounds alike. And I'm thinking, I'm guessing you went to the 90120 concert when that went around because everybody knows those songs but not the 15 years previous of stuff. 
So there was, I started thinking about that. I'm like, wow, Yes had a whole career, a whole long list of albums. And then they came out with 90120 or whatever that is. Before the big, right? 90125, yeah. by the way, because it was their catalog number at whatever. Okay. And they had some pop hits, some radio play with that, but they disappeared and died after that quite a bit. And I'm like, I'm sure at the time, a lot of people were saying, oh, yes, our sellouts. And I know when the Black Album from Metallica came out, which drew in a lot of fans, that was their first experience with Metallica, but it was a different feel. And a lot of people say, oh, they were good before they became a sellout. Or Van Halen, before they got rid of David Lee Roth and got Van Hagar and they were sellouts. So I started thinking, what are your thoughts on sellouts? Because a lot of these groups get that moniker of a sellout because they shift and change. But somebody like Rush who would be one style for four albums, then do a live album, and then change their style. They had a long career with fans all throughout that. And they were never really accused of sellouts as much as some of the others. So I thought that would be an right. interesting thing to ask you about. It's Boy, like uh, when you mentioned it in text, it was like, wow, there sure is a lot to talk about here. <laughs> My idea of a sellout has never been where a band changes its direction. I'm okay if they decide to try things every single album or if the personnel changes bring in different elements i think the sellout thing is where wow they used to do more complex music more heavy music more 10 minute song type things and now you can tell that they're catering to that three minute radio friendly pop confection stuff and even if it's the best that pop confection can be it isn't the same as good yes or good metallica or good i think sometimes i think softening is a lot of what happens there that if they had an edge if they were and maybe this also happens not because they brought in like i for instance doobie brothers once they brought in michael mcdonald his vocal and his style of music very much changed them from jam band kind of rock deeper harder rock to being more radio friendly but i don't think that was to sell out i don't think they got together and said let's bring in this guy to make sure that we get more radio play i think that was just the tenor of that there was michael mcdonald as his style whereas let's see where, what do i think are some of the bigger sellouts uh, i really like a band called gentle giant and they were known for being really difficult really syncopated and odd time signatures and all kinds of stuff going on and yet they have an album called civilian that is three and a half music radio friendly songs and I think maybe one of them got on the radio, but, and it was like, I very much, I love that album. I really love that they're still doing all kinds of interesting things and they still sound like Gentle Giant, but that might've been the label finally said, you know what, unless you give us a hit, you're, we're not, you're, you're off the label kind of a thing. And I think that there's evidence sometimes that the Beatles get told that, that you were already making such great tunes. And then when they went into the, revolver sergeant for they went into a fake how they were doing their own thing so they had earned not having to listen to them but they're i like emerson lake and palmer and all the pomp and circumstance of their big things and yet they have them called love beach i don't know that i think it's a sellout album but it definitely seems like a remainders album like these are the things that uh, didn't make it right. onto <laughs> other albums or they have i know that there's a couple places where it was a contractual obligation album they got a five album commitment and they just run out of steam. They don't like each other anymore. 
whatever it might be. So sometimes they'll do a live album and a greatest hits plus a couple of new hits albums. And you can kind of tell that that's what was going on. I really like the band Kansas. I even just wrote a little love right. note to them about listening to those first six, seven Kansas albums. I can't think of a better stretch where there's not a single bad song. It's fantastic music being made within such a small period of time. They were just at the height of their powers. But then two members of the band went very Christian and all of a sudden they were making like Christian rock in the lyrics and in the kind of music, the lead singer that was very, one of the lead singers, because they had two, really didn't like the direction it was going. So he left for a couple albums and the guy they brought in was Steve Walsh, John Alfonte came in and everything was just a little more fey, a little more easy listening. Harry Living was still writing great songs, but it wasn't the deeper stuff that Kansas had one done. And in fact, when those guys left and Kansas came back with Steve Walsh and Steve Morse on guitar, who's he's this is the guy that they actually like he won guitar player or right. musicians guitarist of the year like 10 years in a row. And they right. actually said, We retire you from competition because you're kicking everybody's ass every single year. So he came and joined Kansas for a while for power and in the spirit of the things. I'm so geeking it up about Kansas, but it was like it really was a return to this is real Kansas. This is atmospheric. This is complex. This is heartfelt instead of just being kind of like to do, you know, right, a little right. poppy. I know I've seen. Wow. I think I talked before one time about sticks and how they had an hour and 10 minute concert. Right. I was like, that's not what I paid for. That's not what I came here for. I don't know what's going on with you guys, but this ain't right. I actually fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. I went to see Dennis DeYoung in concert. No lie. At halftime at intermission, he brought his wife out to do a hair care ad. I wish to God I wasn't. I was making that up. It's like what, you have a captive audience, and now you're gonna. What are you doing? How, how could you possibly think that this is what anybody here came to to see and hear? And every band nowadays with merch has to tread that fine line of they get to mention that the merch is out of the booth, but they can't like harp on it because right. it seems like a sellout. It seems like even if you are. If you're struggling to be on tour because album sales are down and Spotify doesn't pay you anything, et cetera, et cetera, but there's still a way of making it witty or engaging that could be like, hey, support the band and buy some of their stuff, not saying it after every song. It just seems, wow, you're really, you're really bad at this. You're really bad at promoting your own stuff. Let's see. I, who comes to mind for you? Well, you know, those are some of my examples where the direction changed and I thought it changed materially softer right. and there were signs... Uh, again, to mention Sticks, for the Paradise Theater album, if I remember right, or maybe it was Kilroy was here, they actually did like a public survey thing as to which cuts do you like, and that's what we're going to put on our album. And wow, don't you want to be like the artist that has integrity that you choose what's on it and the running order, and it makes the statement that you want to make instead of pandering to the public? It just seemed really too close to... Please love me. Please, fans, love me. Yeah. I respect <laughs> Here's my thing. Another one I could think of is Genesis, who changed quite a bit. They lost one member and they adjusted their sound totally. But also right. at that time, they got a lot of new fans. They got people that had never listened to them or liked them. Same with Metallica with the Black Album. So yes. almost everybody who bitches about a band being sellouts and changing their style, I always kind of roll my eyes because number one, 90% of the time that person doesn't play a bit of music, just listens and consumes music, which is fine. But until okay. you play music for decades with the same guys, 
and go on tour and you're away from home and you're in the studio for 14, 15 hour days till you go through that. Don't bitch and moan about somebody else being a sellout. Number one, <laughs> number two, it's actually extraordinary for people who have done it for 30 years to be able to change direction. Yeah. You know what I mean? To yeah. Say, hey, look, we're going to, we're going to try something new, but we're already really good at this. There's such a lure to just right. keep out doing what it, you well. And right. the, a lot of times I then also, <laughs> I also hear people saying this album sounds like their last one. If they changed, you would call them a sellout. So it's like a no win scenario for the musicians. <laughs> and the band that did pocket crypt tonight, the spin doctors, spin doctors, was that, criticism that your friend had about Moy, every single song they did sounds like the spin doctors. Tonight. Yes. <laughs> it's a nice, I like that backbeat sound. And yet, wow. When you can, yeah. When you can just as they're interchangeable, right. that's a little weird. <laughs> uh, it's escaping me, and I apologize. What's the band that came out in the '90s with Eddie Vedder? The first album, Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam, yes. Pearl Jam. One of the great yes, things okay. about Pearl Jam, if you listen to that first album, which it's a, a freaking phenomenal, amazing album, is they had slightly different styles already cooked into that album. So if you liked it you pretty much could put up with anything. And what you were saying also about asking what songs you like, that's the type of environment we're in today's world. A bit. Albums are dead. It making it singles, yeah. Yeah, Weird okay. Al was one of the first. He released a whole slew of songs on his website that you could go buy individually. And then whichever one sold the most, he put onto the next album. Okay. And here's the last thing with sellouts for me is, first of all, people change over time. I don't like the same music and movies and things as I did 30 years ago. So if you play right. music, you change over time. So it's just an evolution of them. And a lot of times people are remembering stuff from 30 years ago with rose colored glasses. Also, who are we to tell people, Hey, you had 10,000 fans for the last four albums, 10,000 fans. And that's what you were, that was your max but you changed yeah. your sound and now you just sold 2.5 million. You might be a sellout, but who out of us would say, no, I can't put that album out and make 2.5 million sales. I, I want to put this other album out and only make the 10,000. Who's going to say that? Not the people buying the lottery tickets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, just a boy. Things do change over the course of time. I was listening to a ton of music, like 70s, 80s, 90s. What happened in the 80s? A lot of maybe 70s as well, a lot of disco and a lot of punk and then a lot of grunge. And there's various different, like so much punk was just based on, I'm so angry. I can't find a job. I'm not going to really learn to play my instrument, but I need to get this energy and this ox out. And then if you're doing that when you're 18 and then you're asked to do it when you're 48, that's got to be a really weird thing. Actually, I have a wife, two kids, white picket <laughs> fence, couple dogs. Yeah. I'm not really spitting on people like I once did. I'm not I don't have all the piercings I once did. I might right. still have the tattoos because they're more permanent, but it really is. That's why I'm pretty sure you don't see a lot of, you might still see 60s tours where, you know, hey, the, the monkeys and the association, and they can still do their hits and maybe even dress up in their weird little Paul Revere and the Raider clothes and stuff like that. But you kind of can't do that and carry it off if you're going to do God Save the Queen where you're swearing and spitting right. and like breaking your instruments and stuff. It is obviously then just opposed. That instead be the difference between a sellout and opposed. You know well, what I mean? And that's Can a, you really summon that anger that you once had? That's so. such a good point because music changes through generations in time, just like the author business. I see that a lot at sometimes certain types of books are more popular than others. And people try and, oh, I'm going to write this type of book. By that time, the fad's gone. If you wrote, if you came out with a disco album now, it's not going to sell as well as it would have in the 70s. 
So in the heart. Yeah. So you wouldn't be considered a sellout because it wouldn't sell. But if you used to do disco, but now you do heavy metal and it makes lots of money, does that necessarily make you a sellout or does that make you a musician who knows (laughs) the audience and knows the environment? And it's funny you mentioned punk because culture, the clash is a really good example. So many people, oh, they're, I'm behind them. They, against the institution, blah, blah, blah. They were a corporate form boy band, essentially, is what they were created <laughs> specifically to be a rebellious band. And even what is Johnny Rotten, the lead guy or whatever? Or is that, Sex no, Pistols. that's a, yeah. actually, I think, so I think you're talking Sex Pistols. Is yeah, Sex Pistols, Sex Pistols, not the Clash. Yes. Exactly. That's right. And they, there really are those Svengali managers that have been around for a long time that now we're seeing it for K pop. Now we're seeing it still for boy bands, like you're saying. Yeah, they were created. Hey, we can tap into this. Everybody in the UK is unemployed. Everybody is 40 was, that that band name, UB40, was the unemployment form you filled out in England. That's where that- (laughs) I didn't know that. That's funny. (laughs) So there's all kinds of things like that. And I, sometimes albums are just like, they're not as strong as what they had done in the past. And I worry that they've lost their muse as compared to that they sold out. Alan Parsons Project had like great albums, Maybe, but then like up through Eye in the Sky, maybe. And then they had Ammonia Avenue, not as good. Vulture Culture, not as good. What's going on? He's tired. He still had a lot of the same good instrumentalists on his albums and still had, maybe because he worked with Bernie Wolfson or didn't, that the writing wasn't as good. I'm not sure. But sometimes people hit a dry patch that there's no hits forthcoming. There's not even any really like great Alan Parsons projects. But having said that, then he had a return with an album called Try Anything Once that I still listen to in heavy rotation. Whenever I'm sure, what should I be listening to? How about Astronauts and Heretics by Thomas Dolby? Uh, for whatever reason, I love that album. And Try Anything Once by Alan Parsons. These are like my, what do you call, Desert Island discs. If I had this, I'd never get tired of listening to these, that kind of a thing. And that, boy, Try Anything Once ends with a song about suicide that is terribly effective. Wow, like I have heard it. I, ah, it's terrible. yeah really oh god there must be more if anybody is listening to this and want to go listen to a great song even though it really might affect you this is that song or at least wait till after we're out of the doldrums of the winter months wait till the summertime (laughs) exactly don't do this wait when there's a lot of sun outside and the puppy is coming running up to play and all that kind of stuff you'll have the uh, the cures for us exactly another good example i just thought of too you mentioned alan parsons but i thought of boston because Boston's first three albums, I think, are fantastic. And they do change just a little bit. But that third album is one of my top favorites. But then after that, it was kind of like, eh, they didn't change enough with the times or my musical taste. So I remember the first albums fondly, but the ones after that, yeah. And another more recent one is Darius Rucker. He was riding high with Hootie and the Blowfish. And that band was doing really good. And that I don't know if they broke up or he left. I don't know the situation, but suddenly he's a country artist and I like his country stuff too, but I wouldn't say he was a sellout. So it, I, some people might, yeah, I don't yeah. know. It's, I think that sometimes people, even if they don't know what they want to do next, they're in a bad situation and they have to get out. And then I'm always curious as to, okay, now that they're not in the group, if they're doing solo work or if they join a new group, like I, since you mentioned Van Halen, I think that nothing was as strong as the initial Van Halen type stuff. But Gary Sharon, who was the vocalist after Sammy Hagar for an album, he was in a band called Extreme right. that I wish to God they stayed together. Yes. Because him and Nuno Betancourt. 
Bettencourt, an unbelievably great guitarist. If there's anybody that could be like, go toe-to-toe with Eddie Van Halen, it's this guy. And Extreme has another great, like, three, four, five great albums that I, another, that, that the second one, maybe it's just Extreme 2, maybe it's Pornographiti. Right. They're so good. Every single cut is good. And maybe because there's also certain periods of time, I really loved Living Color. Yes. Remember, yeah, Living Color and In Color, that, that album with Cult of Personality. Yeah. That had such incredible crunch. And what's funny is I really thought, hey, there's a hard rock band, if I remember right. And I'm so much not a prejudiced guy, but you can't help but notice four out of five guys are black. That's uncharacteristic that yeah. they're not doing. Especially for name it, the folk thing or the, let me get, I had, I really love Parliament Funkadelic. I really love a whole bunch of different other oh, black yeah. bands. These guys did not sound like your stereotypical find the groove. They were aggressive, hard rock and roll. You know what I mean? I love those anomalies, if you will. I had a couple things there. P-Funk, who was that? George Benson? Is that his name, the main guy? George Clinton. George Clinton, George Clinton. yeah. That, yes, Clinton. We George Benson met. is a great guitarist. Yeah. He's more like jazz as opposed to funk. Okay, yes. Right. Okay. <laughs> Clinton, we remember, P-Funk is another band that was created as a reflection of the times, specifically to be a band that would be popular at that time, because- he, he knows what he's doing. He went on to do movie scores. I was watching Home Alone, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, one of those type of holiday movies. And I'm like, oh my God, George Clinton did the music for this. And you don't, and it's Christmassy, poppy, because he was a smart businessman that knew what the audience wanted at that time, created P-Funk to do that. There's an example. Yeah. Is that a sellout or is that a smart musician businessman? Hey, I could play in little clubs and live in a hole in the wall, or I could create this music and I'm still playing music, but people will buy this. I think there's something to be said for if you really understand a genre of music so well that you can put together a band that will epitomize it, there's something really powerful about that. It isn't, sellout is not the term that I would use. It's more like a super band, like when Cream got together or not yeah. during the dominoes more than Cream. Yes. You know what I mean? There's certain people that they really, I love that. Steve Winwood has worked with any number of bands like that, that he's done a lot of solo stuff, but also it was, has been a phenomenal guy for 60 years in music. And that's yeah. an incredible thing to be able to have worked with that many great people and done that kind of stuff. This is again, not a sellout, but I wonder about this. Someone asked Don McLean, so what does American pie really mean? And he said, it meant I never had to work a day in my life. I could do what I loved for the rest of my life as soon as that was in the canon of greatest American songs. And, you know, that plus is Vincent Van Gogh, too. Yeah. And that yeah, seems to be doesn't need to do the stadium tour. He's content to like, I get to travel half the year, 150, 200 days or whatever like that, maybe play smaller halls and clubs. But he's always in demand. He's never stopped being in fashion, if you will. If that's what you want to do is have a nice dinner, go out and play two hours of music, repeat. <laughs> that's not a bad life. No, you know what I argue. mean? So, yeah. so it, there are and some people that are like that. What, made, <laughs> what you just made me think of is the opposite of a sellout that could have been is Daniel Radcliffe from the Harry Potter fame. That, that kid grew up to be in Harry Potter, he will always be Harry Potter, but he has so much freaking money, he could give it away every day and never run out. And he specifically has chosen uh, projects since then just because he enjoys them and they're interesting and fun. He did Weird Al. Just the fact that yes. he wanted to be Weird Al Whoop. is uh, amazing. Frozen. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah. You froze there for a minute. I'm sorry. But I, I like, I love that too, where you find out that, it, and I might have mentioned this, I always thought that one of the ways in which, like, I had friends that I thought were amazingly talented that I wanted to myself get enough money that I could say, don't work in a garage, go and do what you want to do because I think you have such potential. And kind of like the Medici thing, right. sponsor various different people. And I love that where they have made enough money that they can make our actors often talk about, I do one for the crowds and one for me, that they make so much money off of the latest Mission Impossible that then they can go do their often called vanity projects, but often they're just cool, independent, quirky, interesting. So David Tennant, another guy that like yeah. made his bones with Doctor Who. He's one of the most respected Doctors Who. And yet he's been in all kinds of interesting stuff since then. Instead of just, now I'm stereotyped. Oh no, what am I going to do? It was like, I will break that stereotype. I'll show that I can do all kinds. I can be a villain as well as a hero. I can be, yeah. I really like seeing people, Matt Smith is on the same thing, that they have careers beyond the role with which they might still most be associated, but that's not where they stopped. They didn't just start going to nostalgia cons because of it. Maybe, oh boy, am I getting to a bad place here? There's all kinds of people that go to those nostalgia cons, comic cons that, that I think, oh, if that's a sellout, because like you said, if someone's going to say, hey, just show up and talk for two hours and we'll give you $10,000 or whatever else it might be and do that once a weekend, 10,000 times 50 is pretty good wage yeah. <laughs> for one little kiss. You yeah. know what I mean? Right. Like more when they're like, what's your current project? As opposed to, oh, tell us more about Star Trek from 40 years ago. I hope that they would have enough vitality. They'd still be doing something. Anyway, My anyway. favorite one of that was an Akron Comic Con I went to years ago. And I'm just wandering yeah. around. I like to stay back and get a feel and look around at what I'm interested in. And then I go back to the things I really like. And I'm just wandering. And there's a guy set up at a booth. And he's out front like Barker, like trying to draw people in. And he uh, catches my eye. So I don't want to be rude. And I walk over. Here, he was the actor that played Captain America in the really bad 1970s Captain America movie, which... I didn't yeah. even know about at the time. Well, Nobody had heard of it really at, in yeah, today's world. The Earthbreakers or whatever. Captain America versus the Earthbreaker. Anyway, okay. Yeah. okay. But, you know, yeah. It was a 70s superhero movie. Cheesy, even cheesier than anything else. Or in the costumes. Yeah, exactly. okay. Not popular. People are not <laughs> buying it. It's not been re-released on Blu-ray or anything like that. But he's like coming over. Oh, hey, I was Captain America before this new guy. And really talking himself up. And Do you want an autograph? I'm, I guess. He goes, they're 60 bucks. I'm like. Yeah, no. You're calling me over. Really. I don't care who you are, really, and know who you are. And you want me to give you 60 yeah. bucks for an autograph. That was like, I'm sorry for your life. I'm sorry you didn't have any other project that was better than this, but thank you. That's I Because I go, I love the Cleveland Comic Con, and I've been to various other places. That is always an odd thing where there's, I don't know, small claim to fame type people, minor stars and stuff like that. And this really might be where the, this is their best chance at making a certain amount of money. But it, they don't, boy, I never pay for signatures. You know what I mean? If I have a nice conversation and I get somebody to sign a comic book of mine, Mike Grell just did it for me. Jim Steranko just did it. Maybe Actually, I don't think I had him sign anything because I just was having such pleasure talking with him. I didn't right. want him to think... Hey, the whole point of the conversation was to get something I can sell on eBay. It's never that for me, but I don't even want to have that sour note injected into things. Whereas there are people that they go on the hunt for signatures in every way. And actually this is funny. I had a good friend, Mark in Chicago, that he got his daughter a Tyvek jacket, a fabric that you could write on. And he went to Comic-Con with her and said, hey, sign my daughter's jacket. And he had the biggest collection of great signatures on one thing that I've ever seen ever. 
because she was adorable and everybody was willing to do it and nobody was creepy. It was just slide on her poop. You know, it was all just the coolest thing in the That's world that he found a way to make this artifact. Wow, it was a really cool thing. <laughs> Colin's got kind of the same thing with a hat. He's been trying to get every Green Lantern creator sign this hat because he got a drawn Green Lantern from the guy who I guess originally drew Adam Scott. I don't remember quite before he died. Alan, Alan Scott. Exactly. Alan Scott. Okay. Yes. Yes. Sorry. But yeah, he has. Been, all... um, yeah. Let's see. Martin no, Nolan. Anyway. Yeah. I, but anyway. I'm sorry. I'm not. So now a lot of those creators aren't the big name draws. It's not Ditko or Bashimi or whatever. And so he goes up to him with this hat and they look at it and they're like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And they love it because of all the other Green Lantern creators. The generations of people. Exactly. It is a cool thing. Yeah. yeah. And my personal story is when I ran into Dean Hagland at a parrot, he was Langley from X-Files. And like, the, One the, of the lone gunman, exactly. Yes, right. It was free lone gunman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was so perfect because the conference wasn't done well. There's literally only 21 people there at the conference. So Friday night, there was no one there. He was sitting at his booth, and I'm like, who the hell is not talking to Dean Hagland? So I went up and started, and we talked for two hours. And he remembered me when I saw him a couple years later. And I gave him, uh, so I think I told this story before I bought some stuff off of him because he he did talk to me for two hours. I felt obligated almost, but I still wanted it. And he was having trouble with his stripe reader and getting it to work with his phone. And he had an error and he had to update it and he's struggling with it. And I said, weren't you the tech guy on the Xbox? He said, yeah, shut up. (laughs) So when I saw him the the second time, I made a t-shirt with his face said, I'm not really a tech guy. I just play one on TV. And he remembered oh. the incident. And I gave him the t-shirt, but he mentioned oh, he on his podcast. So I got a shout out from Dean Hagland on his podcast. <laughs> yeah, Honestly, that isn't that like relentless geekery. Isn't that what it's all about? Yeah. I love people that I really have admired from afar and then get a chance to do it from a near. And you find out that they're really cool people, that they're witty, that they like being joshed with, not just worshiped. You know what I mean? My best interactions have always been not where I got to spend 10 seconds in the line to shake Billy D. Williams' hand, but where while everybody else was doing that, I got a chance to meet this lesser actor only in terms of fame, not in terms of quality and famous comic book creators and stuff. I have, we, one day we'll have to just do a whole episode of like, you know, what I have had so many wonderful opportunities like that to talk for at length, to let people know that it's just, you shaped me. Reading, Ray Bradbury, reading your books when I was young, it gave me such a sensibility for the rest of my life of what quality this can be, that it isn't just, it's not about rocket ships. It's about the people in those rocket yeah. ships and yeah. stuff like that. I took the my kids to a New York Comic Con once and we were yeah. walking around and you know, they had the Archer Row and everybody's this much money. And yeah. I told the kids, I said, look, guys, I just cannot afford to bring us here go through everything, buy a couple things. And go down the row. And get, and they didn't care. They were young. They were like, oh, we don't need signatures. But we're walking. I look over and I'm like, that gentleman looks very familiar. There was nobody around him. And he was sitting down. His wife was next to him. And I went up and said, are you Peter Mayhew? And he goes, yes, I am. And I said, yeah, Out wow. of costume, he's not recognizable. But yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? And, Who else is as tall as a Wookiee? Good for he, you, man. He and his wife talked to us and the kids 20 minutes and they were astounded because he's sitting down and he's as tall as they are when he's sitting down. 
and they talked to him and we got pictures. His wife took 20 pictures with us, with him. And the kids had such a good time. And he said, you guys want a signature? I said, not to be rude or anything, but how much are they? He says, oh, I'll just, I'm just giving them to you. I'm like, yeah, please. And the kids were so excited. And then when he passed away, they both cheered up a little bit because they remembered that so fondly. And we would, we did, when we met Stan Lee, it was go up, handle the thing, shuffle sideways. How are you doing? And move. But it was done. Exactly. Oh boy. Yep. I have been going to Comic-Cons long enough that before there was that big Wizard World creating con, kind of that weird effect of celebrity sightings, it really used to be that you could do that with everybody. You know what I mean? I met Jack and Roz Curb. Honestly, I don't know that there's that many people that I didn't meet. If they went to cons at all, I had a chance to meet them because everybody came to Chicago. Everybody came to had really good luck in regard by being in early on it. And like even back then, it was I hardly ever brought things to cons, but sometimes I would find things. And then by coincidence, I buy a mad magazine and here's Sergio Aragon. And if you could just do just give me a little sketch. And, and he's like the fastest guy ever. So he opens the magazine and gives me an extra drawn out drama, an extra marginalia. And it was like, I have the only copy of all of the end of the world yeah. in the magazine, this extra thing. And, but, and it was such fun to talk to him. And it, he's very recognizable. He was, he looks like the guy that he used to draw on the covers of his Mad About Mad and the various different books he did for Mad Magazine. And whenever they, he looked like Salvador Dali. Yeah, had the, yeah, yeah. The, like the, <laughs> but, and it just was, like I said, I've had such luck, and this is there's t-shirts now that say, "Hey, I might be old, but I saw all the good bands in." Concert. I've got that t-shirt. Pretty much like that. I got 50 years. When did I start going? Probably when I was like in my teens, even before going to college. I was going to Comic Con. So, 14, 15. I've been going to Comic Con for almost 50 years, and all kinds of people have passed away. All yeah. kinds of people they don't do it anymore, but I was so happy. In those early days, you really could meet the entire Marvel bullpen. You could meet Stan Lee and Roy Thomas and Steve Ditko, everybody. Wow. They were all, they're just having a great time for the weekend. Yeah. And it wasn't a big merchandising display. It was just a bunch of guys. And while you were goofing with them, they were goofing with each other. They There was so much love between them, you could tell. Maybe not everybody. Not yeah. everybody liked working in the bullpen thing. But that was a big part of it, was that they came into work. They didn't work at home and then kind of fax it and digitize it in. They all sat there in a room, eight people creating the Marvel Universe. Oh, what a cool image is that? Yeah. This nexus of incredible creativity. So wonderful times. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Hey, good okay. talk. Good topics. Absolutely. Next time about risk management, whatever we missed today. I, yeah. Honestly, we, we really... I, what a wonderful conversation. Thank you for your great stories. Thank have, you for the, the, your sensibilities. I love doing this. Here we are years in and we're still like, I'm not tired. Are you tired? I'm still doing fine. Yeah, Let's do yeah. some more of these. Got some ideas <laughs> okay. for some little clips and getting YouTube, TikTok and trying to get people drawn to us a bit. We still got to like do our saying, top still 10. Top 10 list. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I got to right. send you some credentials for that again. For that. We'll get that in there. We'll start plugging away at that more often. Okay. Very cool, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. You bet. Bye-bye. This has been the Relentless Geekery Podcast. If you enjoy our conversation, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and go give us a review. Give us some likes. It would help a lot. Check out our website, RelentlessGeekery.com, where we have links to our Facebook page, Join the Conversation, and go check out our YouTube page, where we have the video of this and other episodes. 
You have been listening to the Relentless Geekery Podcast. Come back next week and join Alan and Stephen's conversation on geek topics of the week. <laughs>